I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. Uh, you know, I need to find a new way to introduce these, but um, I guess not today. Uh, the guest today is Rachel Horowitz. She is the co-founder and president and CEO of Caribou Biosciences, which is a CRISPR company. And um, what do you need to know before before you listen? Well, two things, I guess. No, number one is... Um, she and I had this conversation before the ruling came down from the U.S. Patent Trial and Appeal Board concerning the uh, patent dispute between the University of California, Berkeley, and MIT and the Broad. So uh, that ruling basically said that there was no interference on the part of MIT and the Broad, and that was kind of viewed as a victory for that group. I'm sure this isn't the last word. I think this is going to go to appeal. But anyway, regardless, the conversation that we had was before that ruling came down. So keep that in mind. Uh, second... Um, what did I want to say? Oh, right. So we, I had to, I had to go to her for this interview. I went to Caribou's offices in Berkeley. Um, they graciously hosted me. They set me up in a, um, conference room. Yeah, I'd call it a conference room. Set me up in a conference room. Uh, I brought the mics in and, and set up the equipment there. It's kind of a hard space. There's, you know, tables and walls and that's kind of it. So there's a slight echo to this. I, I folded a little bit in, in uh, post-production, but you may hear that and I apologize, but you know, if I had to wait for perfect situations to record these in, they'd they'd, uh, they'd never get done. So there's that. Now, the the conversation itself, what do we talk about? We Well, we talked about her love of science, where it came from, how it was cultivated. We talked about growing up in Austin, which she did, um, and she talked about why her family was in Austin to begin with. And we certainly talked about CRISPR and caribou and other stuff. That's enough. I think you're ready. So here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Rachel Horowitz. Absolutely, definitely. Sort of uh, business development, speed dating. You know, seeing a lot of um, little companies, potential partners, uh, potential investors. Even though we're not officially financing right now, yeah. um, and certainly enjoying the happy hours at the end of the day too. But you're sort of you're sort of now. Tell me where I'm wrong. You're sort of always financing, right? I mean, even if you're Absolutely. not currently in the, you're you're looking ahead. So that's right. That's yeah. right. 
Okay, well, let's, let's, um, I, I know a few things about you, right? I know you were, um, I think, born in Austin, or uh, raised in Austin. Raised in Austin, not born there. Where were you born? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Really? Mm-hmm. That's like half my family's from Pittsburgh. No kidding. Yeah, um, my dad, my uncle. Yeah, how uh, funny. All my family's in Western Pennsylvania. I go, my girlfriend's from Pittsburgh too, so okay. we go back a lot. How funny. Um, yeah, what part of Pittsburgh? Uh, Mount Lebanon. Yeah, okay, no, I family that. That's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, so I've already found something that I didn't know. But so you, you moved to, to Austin? Yeah, I moved to Austin when I was about eight years old. Uh, my dad's a, a journalist, and uh-huh. he wrote for one of the two daily newspapers in Pittsburgh back at a time when a city could support two daily yeah. newspapers. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, one of them shut down, and it was the one that he worked for and was looking for a new gig, and he found it in Austin, Texas. So what, what kind of journalism was he doing? At the time, uh, he was an environmental reporter. That was his beat for probably 25 years. Um, in Pittsburgh? First in Pittsburgh, then in Austin. Um, and now more recently studies higher, uh, covers, I should say, higher education in the state of Texas. Fun. Okay. And your mother? Uh, she's a fourth grade teacher. Still? Still. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, um, I'm, I don't know the paper in Austin. What would, what would a... It's the Austin American Statesman is the daily there. And he was doing environmental reporting there. Exactly. So what does that, what does that sort of entail in Austin? Um, one of the sort of big things that I learned about early as a kid there was actually a particular natural spring in town called Barton Springs, uh-huh. and it supports a very particular type of salamander that only lives there. And so there was a, a really big push by a large local environmental group to really protect this salamander. Um, and it, it led to a lot of protections ultimately for the animal and, and changes to how the spring is managed. Uh, the spring happens to feed into this spectacular, iconic natural pool. Yeah. So really at the heart of, of Austin, um, but also a really critical environmental issue. And so that was the key report on those things. I, I mean, I understand sometimes, you know, there's, well, the, the discussion will be over. We want to log in this area, for instance, but we I, don't want to disturb the owls here. In this case, was there something on the other side? That's a great question. I was, you know, probably nine at the time. Yeah. I'm sure it was a lot more of a sophisticated debate than I understood. Um, I should ask him as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know, other things that he covered were, for example, he did a, a big sort of multi-day whole series of articles that came out around um, a, a couple of communities right on the southern border of Texas, uh-huh. where they were not getting um, proper water electricity, sanitation, services, et cetera, and we're, we're really living in horrendous conditions um, in the state of Texas yeah. and being ignored by the government. Um, and so his coverage and, and the work of others really shed light on it and, and ultimately helped change and improve these people's lives. So when you, you remember the move, obviously. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So what did you what did you think? Were you like, you know, being taken away from my family, my friends, my... Oh, I was upset. You know, everybody I knew was in Pennsylvania. What was Texas? I didn't know anything about it was convinced I was going to have to ride a horse to school every day. Um, turns out Austin is a fantastic city. I think yeah. I'm incredibly lucky that that's where we landed. You liked it? Absolutely. Yeah, you've never been. It's a phenomenal city. Even before, like there's tons of hipster cred around Austin now. Yeah. Even then it was like that. It, absolutely. Yeah. Before hipsters were called hipsters, it was right. a great city. <laughs> Good for music, arts. Absolutely. I mean, they call themselves the live music capital of the world. I know there are a few other cities who'd, who'd like to debate them on that, but... Yeah. You know, probably any given night could be a boring Tuesday. You've got dozens to a hundred clubs with live bands, um, really laid back music scene. The food scene has only gotten better. Yeah. It's a uh, barbecue's fantastic. So it's, it's a great city. Okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll go. Um, all right. So let's talk about how you began to get your interest in, in sciences. Sure. And so really thanks to my dad, actually. Um, so part of his sort of ongoing 
work was to continue educating himself around some of the science and the, the scientific topics he was covering. So when I was in middle school, he had an opportunity to take a summer course for a few weeks in Woods Hole, Massachusetts at the Marine Biological Laboratory. So he took the whole family along uh, while he was in classes all day. My mom would uh, put my brother and me in the car and drive us around and take us to a variety of the labs where professors would really kindly show us their research. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, absolutely fell in love with marine biology and decided that I had to be a biologist. But can you, can you tell me what was the coolest part? I mean, the, the concept of studying these animals or seeing them? Or... It, it was in part, they made it a very interactive experience. So a lot of the labs, even though they're you know genuine top-tier research labs, also really catered towards visitors. So they'd yeah. have touch tanks with really interesting sea creatures. Um, and I think they were really practiced at talking to a lay audience and probably even a very young lay audience, mm -hmm. but still sort of explaining what a scientific question is, how you uh, create a hypothesis and then go about trying to test that. Um, and thinking about that, especially with these adorable little sea creatures, yeah. was pretty exciting. And so what age was this for you? Uh, middle school. Middle school. Yeah. Okay. So from that point on, you thought... I want to be a scientist or around it? Or I something. wanted to be around science, wasn't entirely sure where I fit. Um, and I think probably my freshman biology class in high school really solidified that biology and research was a, a good place for me to live. Um, my teacher was a bit of a nutso, a phenomenal uh -huh. guy. Um, he pushed us harder than any teacher I've ever had in high school or, or college or graduate school, quite really? frankly. Um, and he threw a textbook at us that was definitely not the approved textbook. It was a collegiate textbook. Um, and part of what we had to do that year was actually design our own research project. Um, and we were really encouraged to think big. And so I, I dug through my mom's biology textbooks from the 70s mm -hmm. and found some interesting references to this hypothesis that planaria, the little worms, somehow are able to store some, if not all, of their memories actually in messenger RNA or, or maybe some form of RNA. Um, and they're also cannibalistic. They can eat each other. And so there was a hypothesis put forward then that they could actually gain each other's memories by eating each other. <laughs> and so I decided to test that. And I had something like three or 400 planaria living in little Dixie cups in my mom's uh, dining room, teaching them mazes and then feeding them to each other. <laughs> All right, and? Uh, and uh, in inconclusive in the end. <laughs> Right. I loved the process. Right. Literally three or four hundred of these elements. Yes. Uh, 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 flatworms. Planaria. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Then you had, you had, you would train one to do a maze. Exactly. And then you would, uh, I mean, I'm going to say feed one to the other yep. and then see if that one could do the maze. Exactly. Yeah. But so that, so that you weren't able to prove that theory, but does that no. theory still exist? It's a great question. I haven't really dug into it recently. I'd, I'd love to though. That's, that's, um, I mean, that seems a fairly advanced Experiment for someone of that age, maybe I don't know. What what is what was the class doing? The rest of the class? Um, yes, I honestly don't remember what other people ended up doing. Um, you know, we were in a public school that didn't have a lot of funding, so we didn't have access to any of the resources like microscopes or really yeah. anything else in the classroom. You kind of had to just go with whatever you could find at your house. Did they pay for your worms? No. Oh, you had to pay for it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so at this point you're thinking that was fun, right? And you actually had a hypothesis, you tested it, but you know, inconclusive still, and you thought this is what I want to do for my life in some way. Exactly. Okay, so then it was uh, um, off to Harvard. Right? Exactly right. Went to Harvard undergrad. Um, took me a few tries to finally land on the right science major, and it ultimately graduated with a degree in biology. So okay, let's can we talk about how your um, 
your interest expanded in college? If, sure. If it did? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I didn't really know where in the grand world of biology I thought I might fit. Um, and what was great about the program that I was in was that we actually had a tremendous amount of flexibility and could kind of sample across a huge menu of classes to satisfy degree requirements. Um, we had the opportunity as freshmen to take these very small seminars that were maybe 10 students, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I found one that just sounded interesting. It was about bioluminescence, and I thought, what the heck? Um, and it was taught by a guy by the name of Woody Hastings, who really was one of the key founders of the field of bioluminescence uh, you know, several decades before that. And he did two really great things. One was he tried to make the science as interactive as possible uh -huh. um, and would schedule things like a behind-the-scenes tour for the 10 of us to go to uh, the aquarium in Boston, literally see everything from behind where everyone else sees it, um, and take samples. So he had us all carrying Petri dishes around. We're scooping up the weird water out of the tanks, taking it back and culturing it to prove that actually bioluminescence is all around us. And simply because often we're in light, we don't see it. Um, but then we had these phenomenal glowing plates that I had sitting on my desk for you know months uh, in my dorm room. But he also really pushed us to read scientific literature, primary scientific literature, which as a freshman in college, I had absolutely no business doing, yeah. didn't understand the vast majority of it. But it was the right environment, a small enough set of people that he could really coach us through it. And that ended up being an invaluable skill that's served me well till today. Sure, yeah. So he was, he was saying things like... Um... I don't know. I read an interesting paper. I think you guys should read it. Or do you have, have you been to the library and seen the subscription for whatever? Yeah. It was, he would assign us really specific papers. Um, and a lot of them were kind of the classics in the field. So, you know, old papers from maybe the seventies or the eighties, um, or maybe the, the equipment wasn't quite as sophisticated. So yeah. it was a little bit easier for us to get our feet wet since we weren't familiar with a lot of the lab techniques yet, but to really understand what was the hypothesis? What were the methods they tested, and, and what did they learn about it? Um, and it was it was pretty fascinating. You know, so these these two things that, that caught your attention one these worms that may be able to accrue knowledge by cannibalizing their neighbors and family, <laughs> and the other bioluminescence. They both they both have this the um, like a, a hint of magic to them. I I think that's right. Yeah. I've, I've always been a little bit drawn to something that's outside of sort of the core central dogma, if you will. Yeah. Um, and by the time I got to graduate school, I still really didn't know exactly what I wanted to study, but had this vague notion that RNA was pretty cool and yeah. I needed to be doing something with probably non-coding RNA. Um, I loved the idea that these you know, molecules that had kind of been overlooked for quite a long time as just the sort of halfway point between DNA and protein, we're actually doing really, really fundamental, yeah. important things yeah. in the cell. Okay, so the, so I'm going to back up a little bit. Yeah. You're in Harvard, your mind's expanding, you're looking at research papers, it's just getting you um, into the concept of real academic research, right? Yeah. And you're near graduation, and you don't know exactly what you want to do, but you, you think higher education is, is part of it, right. right? So were you right. applying broadly across the country or the world, or did you think, uh, you know, Berkeley's where I want to go? You know, across the country. Um, and in fact, I'd never been to California before I interviewed for graduate school at Berkeley, Cal, and UCSD. Okay. Um, yeah. I should say Berkeley, Stanford, and US, UCSD. And, you know, really was just looking pretty broadly at what I thought were some of the, the best programs and wanted to roll the dice and, and see where I could go. Um, but I think largely because I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was ultimately drawn to Berkeley, which has a very broad, large umbrella program 
where you land in one program but can sample across a huge number of different types of labs, whereas a lot of other schools have dedicated departments that are much more specialized, and I, I wasn't ready to make that type of decision yet. And so um, just talk about Boston. You'd come from Texas, right? How did you... Did you like Boston, the, the winters, et cetera? You know, it was kind of winter light because we lived in the dorms and so didn't have to drive in it, That's didn't right. have to someone, shovel it. Someone cleans up for you. Exactly. Yeah. You could yeah. go outside, have a snowball fight, then come in and have some hot chocolate. So yeah. it, was, it was quite lovely. Um, I'm really fond of Boston. Um, now have you know family and friends who live there, so spend as much time there as I can with absolutely no interest to actually shovel the snow myself. Right. It's like living in New York. <laughs> exactly. Someone does the sidewalks for you. Okay, so then California liked, you're at Berkeley. Um, I mean, I, well, okay, I'm going to have you tell me. How did you find your, your area at Berkeley? Yeah, so I, I really was only guided by, I think, RNA is cool. Uh, what do I do next? And so we were required to rotate through test at least three different labs before we chose which one to join for our thesis research. So I picked three labs who were looking at RNA from three totally different directions. Um, one was more of a traditional cell biology lab with some biochemistry. One was a computational lab. I had absolutely no business there, but it was fun to learn. Uh-huh. Um, and then one was Jennifer Doudna's lab. Yeah. And I thought I was joining her lab to do some work on RNAi. That's obviously what she was really famous for at that point in time. Um, but the day that I showed up, she pitched a project to me about this system called CRISPR, the only place I'd heard about CRISPR before was when I got an answer wrong on a test a few weeks previously asking what a CRISPR was, and I'd never heard of it before. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and when she described it as this potential immune system in bacteria that was really relying on these strange little RNA molecules that definitely fit my, um, my curiosity, yeah. and uh, that's frankly what I've been working on ever since. But you're saying the day you walked in? Yes, huh. yeah. So you, you, okay, so the, the three labs, you thought, well, this one seems to be most like the one that would suit me, and then the day I walked in, someone said, let's, let's put you on CRISPR. Exactly. Yeah, okay, so then, and this was, oh, God, this must have been... This was 2007. 2007. Mm-hmm. All right, so early. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th- tell me about exploring that, this, well, it wasn't even technology yet, this concept. Right. Um, it was incredibly easy to get up to speed on the field. There were about three computational papers that had been published and one experimental paper. So I read them all <laughs> um, and was being mentored by a postdoc who was the only other person in the lab working on CRISPR at the time. Uh-huh. And he had identified one of the subsets, one of the flavors of the immune system. And we really just wanted to ask some really basic questions around what the function of the six identified proteins were biochemically and in cells, and, and frankly, try to understand how this immune system functioned and, and what role the RNAs were playing in it. Um, so it turned into a pretty basic biochemistry exploration uh, that ultimately turned into a structural biology project as well. Okay, so then t- take me through your, your PhD program, and then eventually I want to get to Caribou, but just sort of, um, you know, what were your, how many years was that? Four? I was there about five years. Five. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, what did you learn? What breakthroughs happened while you are in the lab? Um, Yeah, we were, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to have joined this field so early, uh, really at its beginning, quite frankly, and kind of scientifically grew up with it. Um, This postdoc and I started off really just trying to express and biochemically characterize each of the six proteins. Um, The day that I landed, he already had constructs going for five of them, and there was a sixth that wasn't behaving well, and so he decided that would be my project, (laughs) figure out what's going on and, and try to get it expressed. Yeah. Um, 
Long story short, it turns out the Pseudomonas originosa genome had been misannotated there. So once we figured that out, it was really easy to express this little protein. Um, and very quickly, I was able to show that its responsibility was actually generating CRISPR RNAs. So it's a very specialized endoribonuclease. It binds the repetitive element in the CRISPR uh, sequence in this particular bug, cuts it, generating the small CRISPR RNAs, and then actually holds on to that small RNA. And the entire surveillance complex forms around that um, protein bound to the RNA, and that's ultimately what does the, the targeting and degradation. So I spent uh, several years studying one 187 amino acid protein, um, did a ton of biochemistry in collaboration with others in the lab. Um, we ultimately solved six different crystal structures of the protein, um, holding on to different pieces of DA, uh, different pieces of RNA. So we really understood the cleavage mechanism and how it ultimately worked. So definitely a, a very deep, deep dive into a, a rather esoteric piece of the CRISPR world. So as this is happening, I mean, so this is, um, I mean, Jennifer's looking at this too and watching your work. Are, are you sort of, this is a difficult question for you to answer, I'm sure, but are you, were you setting yourself apart from others with your research? Do you think that you were getting noticed for the work you're doing? You know, I, I think that I was part of what was then a growing group of people in the lab studying CRISPR. Um, and frankly, the, the group of us were doing really what was at the time some pretty cutting edge biochemistry on a brand new field. Yeah. So it was very exciting in our field, but it was also very exciting across RNA biology. And so I, I think because of the, the uniqueness and initially the novelty of these systems, we got a lot of attention, um, and so I'm very lucky that my first publication ever was a science paper, yeah. um, and many others in the lab were cranking out science and nature papers as well, and I, I think it, it really, frankly, helped all of our careers pretty significantly. Yeah, okay. So at this point, what do you think, what did you think you were going to do? Did you think you were going to just be a researcher? You know, I, I went into graduate school knowing I didn't want to be a professor when I grew up. Um, but can I ask you why that is? I hear this often, and I'm yeah. wondering why. So it was actually largely because I thought I wanted to be an attorney when I grew up, and I was pretty excited about my then really naive understandings of the commercial side of science, um, and in general was very interested in finding ways to do cool research, to be involved with very interesting science, but in a way that felt closer to my community than any of the research projects I'd done before. You know, I said, when I sat down at, at dinner with friends and they asked me what I worked on, it became really clear that the questions I was asking and the work that I was doing was so far from ever impacting someone's health or developing a product. And ultimately, I wanted to figure out some way to be closer yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, through the work in the Doudna lab, we were filing patent applications on some of the you know, inventions that we had come up with and had an opportunity to work with a patent agent and some patent attorneys to do that, very quickly realized that writing patent applications was probably the most boring thing I'd ever seen and definitely didn't want to do that for uh -huh. the rest of my life. But I had already sort of bitten the bug about thinking about the commercial side of science, had no real plan or roadmap for how I was going to land in a company or even what kind of role, but knew I wanted to I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Actually be on the company side. Okay, so for, for a hot second there, you thought you were probably going to go to law school after right. this and right. then be a patent attorney. Exactly. Right, okay. And then you realize that... Not, not to say that it's boring, but it wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. Okay, that's so, right. But at least now you're thinking, all right, well, then I still want to do something that is going to, as you said, impact people in a more direct way than, than you know, research might. Exactly. And I had the opportunity to actually take some business school classes while I was at Cal. So that helped give me, you know, a little bit of a grounding in um, accounting and finance and HR and business development and the lingo and jargon that I, I might see in the business world. Yeah, so you were thinking about a company. Exactly. Yeah. And did you think it would be, did, you didn't know what company, you just thought I might work for a company one day? That's right. Uh, definitely was not on a path to, you know, found my own company. That was not something that I thought I would ever do. Okay. So then how did it come about that you're running Caribou? So um, fast forward a few years through grad school, I was definitely not one of two people anymore. I was one of many people in the lab working on CRISPR systems, um, studying a variety of different proteins. And a few of us had started thinking not only about how they work in their native systems, but how you could co-opt them mm. and, and use them to as a tool, as a technology. Um, and so the little endorabinuclease that I had spent so much time on, um, we actually came up with a methodology to use it as a way to actually affinity tag and purify RNA molecules in the way that biochemists have been able to tag and, and purify proteins for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was my personal first foray into thinking about what a product could look like. Did a collaboration with some scientists at Agilent where we proved this out. Um, one of my colleagues was studying uh, pre-microRNAs and was able to, to fish them out and identify a whole variety of proteins that, that bind these um, uh, pre-microRNAs before they're processed in a way that no one had understood before. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, obviously, there were a number of other things going on in the lab um, clearly the Cas9 project being a particularly interesting one where people were seeing real commercial opportunity. So the original conversations were, were very focused around the endorabinuclease technology and then obviously expanded pretty quickly from there. And we're really just a series of conversations initially between Jennifer and myself and then a larger group of people around what we thought could be possible. And then for some reason we got to the point of not only was it possible, but we thought we could found the company and, and get it off the ground ourselves. Yeah. So I mean, from the research that I've done, it, it seemed like um, the decision was made to found the company and uh, no one was particularly interested in, in running it, right? They weren't like the person who could run it and wanted to was you. That's right. And so that's how it happened. 
Yeah, my, my three co-founders are, are academics through and through. Um, they're all faculty. Everyone was at Cal at the time, but now scattered across the globe. Yeah. And I feel really lucky that um, you know I, I was very interested in it, and they were crazy enough to trust me with this opportunity. Yeah, I mean, so, you, well, you were young, but that's not that much of a hindrance anymore. Lots of young people are starting companies. You hadn't run one before. That's right. That can be a hindrance as far as VCs are concerned. Yeah. Um, but, but you were the one who said, no, no, I've actually been thinking about doing this and I'm happy to take this on. Exactly. And they also exactly. agreed that you had the skill set to do it. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So then let's, let's talk about how it actually happened. I mean, were the, the first funding, was that your responsibility to raise? How did you build your network? Where did you find the space? Right. You know, all these nuts and bolts of actually building a company. So a lot of the very initial nuts and bolts were made a lot easier through a program called Startup in a Box, run by the QB3 Institute, mm-hmm. um, which sits between UC Berkeley, UC San Francisco, and UC Santa Cruz. Um, Jennifer's lab happened to be affiliated with that institute, and so as a company spinning out of her lab, we could have access to it. And so uh, we got free introductions and, and pro bono legal work to incorporate the company, Great introductions to a local bank who specializes in you know, startup companies. Mm-hmm. A variety of those introductions that are necessary but are not going to be in a PhD scientist Rolodex. So that got us incorporated, got us off the ground, and they had a variety of incubators in their network. And so I actually rented one bench and one desk in the incubator on the Berkeley campus, which happened to be in the same building as Jennifer's lab, um, only her lab is on the top floor of labs with, you know, beautiful views into the hillside and and over the bay. Um, This was underground where I couldn't even take a a cell phone call. It was was so far underground. But it was a great price and it it was a great place to get started. So that was just you down there? And that was just me. Uh, At the beginning, I was the first person working for the company. Um, And we got... But but hold on. So that's that's you down there. Yes. Um, And you are supposed to be doing both the research that's associated with the company and running it? Yeah, it turns out it's pretty much impossible to do that. Yeah. So there was very little research that I did during those times um, and a lot more focusing on figuring out the business yep. model, raising money, etc. Um, so the, the first money that we got came in, in two pots. One was friends and family. Um, we were very lucky to have some immediate backers who were willing to take a bet on us. And then I actually rant, uh, wrote a couple of grant applications yeah. and so had uh, two SBIRs, one from the NIH and one from the NSF to, to bring the initial money in. Okay, so that got you, uh, I'm just assuming, you know, maybe a million dollars total, enough to sort of open doors and exactly. start. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And then you had to do your, your A round. That's right. So yeah. then, then it was time to raise our Series A. Um, and we ended up taking an approach of actually looking at strategic partners as part of that round. And so we're looking at companies who would be potentially interested in partnering with us, but who also have uh, venture capital funds where they invest in little startups as well. And so ended up working very closely with DuPont and Novartis, both of whom participated in the round, um, as well as a, a traditional institutional investor. They were called Fidelity Biosciences then, yeah. Prime Capital now. Yeah. Okay. So that, that Fidelity being you know, well-known. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So how was... Was the due diligence difficult? I mean, that this has to. So you're you're building this company as there is a building interest in CRISPR technology That's at the right. same time. So That's I right. think that automatically would get eyes on you. Exactly. Um, but how, how uh, when when they came in and found you sitting in the basement? I mean, what did, how did it go? <laughs> right. Uh, so pretty quickly, I was no longer in the basement. Um, once we had enough capital, we hired a few other people to join the team. We couldn't all fit in the basement together. Yeah. Um, so moved into a, a larger incubator further south, but still in Berkeley. 
um, where, you know, we had some natural sunlight, so a, a little bit of a better facility. And, you know, I think probably a lot of investors are looking pretty heavily at the team and the track record of the team. Obviously, I didn't have a track record to yeah. show yet as a 26-year-old at the time. Um, but Jennifer Doudna clearly had a, a tremendous reputation. Um, some of the people we were able to bring in initially as advisors and then some of them employees to the company had great track records as well. Um, and frankly, there was a lot of buzz and excitement around CRISPR yeah. at that point, and we were one of a very small number of companies in that space with access to some of the key intellectual property. Okay, and so the company has been built as um, a technology mm -hmm. and not for therapeutics. And can you tell me why that decision was made? Sure. So we, I think, have taken a different mindset than most everyone else has and said not only is therapeutics a really important opportunity, but also agriculture, industrial mm -hmm. biotech, and basic research. They're really fundamentally any market with bio-based products will be changed, will be improved by gene editing. And we wanted to build a company that could tap into all of that. Um, and so we initially built Caribou into a very technology-heavy, very R&D-heavy organization, realizing that all the improvements you make to the core gene editing capabilities will be helpful across all of these different markets. Um, we also use strategic collaboration to really educate ourselves and, and learn what the real high-value problems are, frankly, mm -hmm. across these different spaces. We've learned a ton through our, our partnership with DuPont and Novartis, um, and now with a, a British company called Genus as well. And we recognize that we as a you know, single company cannot do and be everything across all of these markets. So one of the business models that we have used and, and will use again is spinning out a company to focus yeah. in a dedicated space. And so obviously Intelia, we're very excited to be a co-founder of. Um, and they have an exclusive license from Caribou for using the CRISPR-Cas9 technology for human gene and cell therapies. Okay, so then uh, um, I'm wondering if the investors, when, when they came in and, and the concept for the company is going to be, you know, sort of a platform, if they were, if, they, if there was maybe any sort of drive that you guys should think about therapies, because usually that's where the home run money is. Did you experience that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we experienced everything under the sun. Um, some investors love the concept of a platform. They see it as a way to manage risk, uh, to access some spaces where you can get uh, revenues much faster, others that are much higher risk, longer term, really a way to play very broadly. Um, many others have very specific areas where they focus. And so a lot of the feedback that we've gotten over the past you know, four and a half years now is come talk to us when you're interested in this very particular space, or if you'd like to partner with a new co in that space over there, let us know. Um, so it, it's been a frankly a great opportunity because as we continue to mature and evolve, we will be moving into some of those spaces and, and we've got a great list of people to reach out to. So it's, it's possible that you may spin out other things and you know, if you think that you have a great application just for ag, you might spin out a company in that area. Yeah, I'd say really good chance that you'll see us spin out at least one, if not more companies. And I think you'll also see us focus internally as we start to really enable certain groups externally in certain fields. We'll really start focusing internally as well in particular areas where ultimately we can go from technology platform to products. Can, can we talk about um, the patent thicket? Sure. So maybe you should have been a patent lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, I think I read someplace that you've, you've said, um, look, no matter who wins this patent battle, we're, it's just going to come down to royalties and licensing after that. And I, I think the question is, let's say that, that um, Cal wins. Do you license to the MIT space? 
mean, that's a competitor. Right. So it, you know, at, at the end of the day, there are going to be different business decisions made by now than many different companies who have access to the Cal IP. Yeah. Um, so we have an exclusive license from UC and from Vienna for their rights for all fields of use. We've now further sub-licensed that exclusively to certain other parties like Intelia and DuPont. So they'll have some of their own decisions to make. Um, and then also there's a, a third co-owner of that estate, a woman by the name of Emmanuel Charpentier, um, and she's licensed uh, some of her own companies as well. So we're, there's sort of a, a big extended family now of, of companies with different rights to this technology. And do, I mean, is that worry you as you're growing this company? You know, I think at the very beginning, I would have loved if we were in a company that controlled everything in the space. Um, that's not a choice that we had. Yeah. Um, and I think, frankly, I've realized there's actually a really interesting benefit to being in a space that is as busy and as fast as this is. It means there's so many other people who are investing in validating, improving, driving forwards the technology. So it's de-risked the space yeah. so much faster than we ever could have. And frankly, it's built a lot more momentum than any one company ever could have. So I think we as a field have learned more about Cas9 in the past two years than probably the Zinc Finger and Talon fields did in the 10 years before that. That's a that. great point. Yeah. So there are just so many more people working on it. So there's there are pros and cons, but I actually think I like this version of the world better. Sort of the, the rising tide lifting all boats. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you just, uh, I think last month you signed a sort of cross-consent with um, U.S. Genomics, CRISPR Therapeutics. Right. So that's sort of your... Um, you know, growing your family in, in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're all, in one way or another, licensees of the, the UC Berkeley, Vienna, uh, Charpentier IP. So it was really validating our ways that we've been collaborating together for years now to, to prosecute the IP. Maybe nothing knows, but what keeps you up at night about running this company in this space? Yeah, you know, I, honestly, I think we're so busy that I sleep pretty well every night. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think the, the fundamental question always is, looking at the next phase and the next series of strategies for the company, you know, making sure that we're investing in the right way to really maintain our technology and scientific leadership that's really at the heart of the company, um, and also making sure that we're making the right decisions about which markets we play in and how, whether it's through licensing and partnership, whether it's that we start to invest truly in developing our own products. And I, I think probably at the end of the day, making a decision is better than not making a decision and there are a lot of answers that are perfectly fine. And yeah. so it really, it's about um, continuing to set strategies and goals and executing on them. So I want to, I want to broaden this out and sure. just talk about um, the CRISPR technology in general, right? And the ethical concerns that are related to this. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think, I mean, I don't know that there are answers to this, but what do you think the responsibility of science is in progressing humankind? I mean, CRISPR has... You know, whenever, like you were mentioning before, when you talk to friends and family mm -hmm. about what you do, when I talk to people about CRISPR, you know, I try to impress on them the vast abilities. I mean, the, the, the potential here is huge, and yet they always kind of go, God, that sounds kind of scary. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it is scary, but, but um, yeah, I'm tired of talking. You, you talk about this. What, what, what do you think the responsibilities are? I, I think we have significant responsibilities, individually as scientists, as a company, as a community, um, to be discussing and debating what's right and what's not okay, um, what types of regulation should or should not be applied, what sort of self-policing in the community there, there could be. Um, for us as a team, we've drawn a, a really hard line. We will not 
um, modify human germline cells, human embryos, and we don't allow our licensees and, and partners to do that either. Um, I think there's there's pretty strong um, alignment around this moratorium. Until... Exactly around not modifying human embryos for the purpose of actually giving birth to a child. Yeah. Um, where we are seeing some really dramatic differences are whether people are comfortable or not with modifying human embryonic tissue for research purposes. Um, and so I think we fundamentally have a responsibility first to listen and second to participate in those discussions. Um, for example, I had just sort of assumed that all of Europe and the U.S. would come to very similar conclusions on what's okay and what's not and quickly learned that actually the U.K. is coming to very different conclusions than the United States is. And it, it took some digging for me to, for me to understand that. Um, I, didn't, I don't know this. Can you explain that? Yeah, so in the United States, the, you know, the NIH and, and probably other funding bodies at this point have stated very clearly they will not fund any projects that modify human embryos for any purpose, even if it's research purposes only. There's a really hard line. We're not mm -hmm. seeing that happening here. Um, whereas in the UK, uh, one group already has applied for a license and, and been granted the right to use CRISPR to modify early human embryonic tissue. Um, and at first I didn't understand that. I, I thought the scientific communities would come to the same decision, um, but have learned that actually the regulatory environment and the legal environment is very different in our two countries, leading people to different conclusions. So at least as I understand it in the United States, there are no laws that prevent scientists from manipulating human embryonic tissue for any purpose, and, and there really aren't any constraints built around that. Whereas in the UK, to work with early embryos and specifically to do this type of research, you actually have to apply to a governing body for a license. Um, once you're granted that license, it comes with very strict rules. For example, you can only work with the tissue for the first 14 days, and then you have to sacrifice it. And if you don't do that correctly, you, the scientist, actually go to jail. Yeah. So it creates a very specific contained environment that I think leads otherwise very similar people to come to different conclusions. So that alone has taught me two countries that I otherwise think of as being culturally very similar are coming to different conclusions. We need to continue listening to and learning from other cultures, other regulatory systems, to hear why other people might have different perspectives. But for us, for what we work on, for what our partners work on, it's really clear. There's so many tremendous problems in healthcare, in food, frankly, even in industry that can be solved by this technology, and that's where all of our effort is going. Yeah, that's. I think that's kind of, I think the question is, um, how do we convince, and by we I mean the scientific community, right. convince um, Joe Public that the potential benefit outweighs the risks here. And, and every new area of science brings fear. I mean, you could say that about antibodies when they were first right. developed. I mean, you right. could say that about almost every new breakthrough. How do we able, how are we able to sort of um, convey that to the public? I think healthcare is the best setting to do that. Um, the, the public is very receptive to new medicines. Uh, people have tremendous hope when it comes to all different kinds of illnesses and, and potential treatments or cures. And so I, I think even more attention in the public press and, and other avenues, talking less about the patent battle and other things that tend to get a lot of attention, and more about a lot of the therapies that we're going to see in the clinic as early as, as this year or next year. Um, and really the way these sort of much more personalized medicines yeah. can and will have a really significant impact on oncology, rare diseases, genetic disorders. I think as, as people understand 
how this intersects with really significant diseases that we have no treatment for today, um, and how, frankly, it, it plays with their own genetics, what it, what it means to understand your own genome. I, I think that's the conversation we need to be having. And then, so just, um, you've been CEO for five or six years? Um, probably four and a half at this four point, yeah. yeah. And uh, you recently got married right? mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. That's right. Um, well, obviously, people who start companies often find it infectious and like to do it again and again and again. Right. Um, I'm not to, say, not to say that you would leave Caribou, but have you thought about what you might do some other day? It, all, all good questions. Um, uh, my husband and I have actually been together for almost a decade at this point. So he's been through you yeah, know every up yeah. and down with this. With he's, a scientist. he's also a PhD scientist, uh, same uh, PhD program at Cal. Um, and in fact, his mother was the CEO of a small biotech company for oh, quite some time. He's like the so he's, spouse. Yeah. he's he's seen this. He's extraordinarily understanding, and I'm I'm so thankful for that. Um, I definitely do feel like I've, I've bitten the bug. Um, I've had a chance to sort of vicariously do this a second time by really being closely involved Intelli. in the founding of Intelia. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what comes next? Honestly, I, I haven't even thought about it yet. Good. Perfect. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's the end of that. Um, good talk, right? You know, e even listening to this in edit, uh, my lasting impressions of Rachel are um, businesslike and sharp, and and I guess that's not a that's not a surprise, right? I mean, everybody everybody that I've interviewed has has been sharp, but still sharp, sharp, sharp. Um, thanks a lot, Rachel, for having me into the office and making the time. I, I appreciated it. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. They do not charge me for using their music, and for that, I am forever grateful. Um, if you'd like to find out more information on Caribou or the Patent Fight or Rachel. Uh, go to our blog, Trade Secrets. I will put some information up there and link to the podcast. Now, what else? Um, right, so we've been doing these for years now. I love doing these, if that's not uh, if that's not clear. And the archives are filled with these kinds of things. So who's in there? Kari Stephenson is in there. I loved that conversation. Um, Mary Tanner, I was just listening to that one the other day to, to pull out some information. That was great. I enjoyed that. Stanley Crook, a great one. Maybe one of our most popular, I think. And um, just a good guy overall. And plenty others. So uh, that's all free. They're in the archives. You can find that off our um, the homepage for Nature Biotechnology as well. Yeah, that's that's it. Thank you and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details traffic jams, tailgating, 
pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.